Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and I am joined by our arts editor, the wonderful Lucy Dallas. Lucy, hello. Hello, the wonderful Thea Linarduzzi. <laughs> this is a love-in. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it falls to us to let listeners know that Stig Abel has moved on. He is no longer the editor of the TLS. The TLS has a new editor, Martin Ivans. This podcast will merrily continue in Lucy in my hands. And what we may lack in stigliness, we will make up for in other ways. You'll just have to stay tuned to find out what those other ways are. Of course, we both know what this changing of the guard really means. Lucy, you can now provide weekly updates on your allotment. What is growing and what is not? I think that's probably deeply unfair for all the uh, TLS podcast listeners. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, in a nutshell... I do have actually some nuts growing there. But in a nutshell, tomatoes. Are you growing things in nutshells? Hazelnuts. <laughs> <laughs> but very briefly, to spare everybody the pain, tomatoes good, potatoes okay. Okay, in summary. Well, I planted some tomatoes and then the temperature dropped by about 10 degrees Celsius. So uh, I'm sure that's going to be a success. Either they will wither or they will be dug up by Alf the dog or possibly, possibly both. Um, he actually dug a hole so deep, this is Alf the dog, that when I stood in it, it came up to my knee. <laughs> That's real commitment. What it would be really good is if he buried bones in the bottom of it like Nasha from the Beano. Well, he would if, if, if only we allowed him to take his bones outside, but we know that that's what he wants to do and so we don't let him. Anyway, anyway, we're, we're, digress- we're digressing a lot. Now, if... Listeners would like to try a subscription to the TLS. This is still the best offer going. Go to the TLS website and use this special offer code, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer, and you'll receive six issues for £5 or $5. Coming up on this week's show, part of the paper has a special focus on medieval history just 10 centuries or so to get to grips with then. We will be guided by David Horsepool, our history editor, and can expect to hear plenty about Henry III, a pious and peculiar king who reigned for more than half a century, and this in a period famed for turbulent dynastic politics, but whose incompetence did eventually catch up with him. 
and Lindsay Handley will join us to discuss the Pet Shop Boys, a music duo almost as long reigning as Henry III, who have always made things quite hard for themselves. Now, you can't say we don't have range here at the TLS. West End Girls by the Pet Shop Boys was recently named the UK's best ever number one by The Guardian. This is obviously highly debatable, but we won't go into that now because that's a different podcast. What is certainly undeniable is the impact the song had then and the amazingly long and successful career of the Pet Shop Boys since 1984 when it came out. The charts at the time were dominated by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Spandau Ballet, Duran Duran and Culture Club, and the hit factory of Stock, Aitken and Waterman was just beginning. Pop music felt important and Neil Tennant, one half of the Pet Shop Boys, knew that as well as anyone since he was at the time assistant editor at the Mighty Smash Hits, probably the best music magazine ever, which is another different podcast. Two books have recently been republished about life on the road with the Pet Shop Boys and Lindsay Hanley has written us a lovely heartfelt piece about them. Lindsay, many thanks for joining us. Hello, hi. Hi. Thank you for asking me. But can I ask first, though I think I know the answer to this, are you a Pet Shop Boys fan? (laughs) I've been a Pet Shop Boys fan since West End Girls got to number one, 34 years, since the age of nine. So they're just completely formative. It's like they're in my DNA. Do you remember the first time that you heard them? Do you remember having a sense that this was something really important? Well, the funny thing is, I think I remember seeing them on a not very good children's pop quiz. Uh, it was Mike Reed's Pop Around <laughs> on BBC One. I realised that they were really, really different. They weren't jumping around on the stage. They weren't smiling. Uh, they wore, well, Neil Tennant certainly wore suits. He wore glasses. And I was kind of like, pop stars wearing glasses? I've never seen pop stars wearing glasses before. It was only when West End Girls got to number one and it's got that extraordinarily um, atmospheric introduction it's incredibly sophisticated and it just sounded absolutely nothing like anything that had come before or since really I was going to start with West End Girls, actually, um, because I was thinking about the opening lines, which for a pop song, they're quite something. Sometimes you're better off dead. There's a gun in your hand pointing at your head. It's quite downbeat. And we were going to just listen to a little bit here to remind ourselves. having a chair bop there aren't we yes Uh, yes (laughs) Lindsay I was going to say do you think so do you think that the building blocks of of Pet Shop Boys songs are all there in that first one I think so yeah I think it's the combination of the very sort of short story-esque lyrics the very very straightforward delivery the incredible air of as I said sophistication I think that complete sort of metropolitan glamour that I think only they coming from outside London and having moved to London precisely because it seemed incredibly glamorous and yet quite 
quite skanky at the same time, frankly. But that 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 sense of of, of glamour and um, kind of misery colliding, I think that's definitely at the heart of all Pet Shop Boys, all the best Pet Shop Boys songs, to be honest. Delicate and beautiful synth, and then some spontaneous trumpeting. Exactly. You know, it's very, very hard to think uh, of an act that's remotely like them, really. And I think that's got a lot to do with the particular circumstances that they both, that they met in. It was kind of in the post-punk era, really. You know, they met on the King's Road, uh, Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe. They both had an interest in David Bowie. They both had an interest in punk. You know, and King's Road was was the sort of the heart of of where punk started, or one of the hearts, because of where Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood had their shop where the Sex Pistols met and so on. And, you know, I think it was that sort of fusion of punk and dance and disco, all those things combining added to the fact that Neil Tennant's from Newcastle and Chris Lowe's from Blackpool. They kept those connections with the North and were always aware during the Thatcher period what was happening in the North and felt very connected to it. it gave an absolute political edge and a political anger that their music might not have had otherwise. And there was that, that constant kind of refusal to pretend that everything is great, which, and that's, you know, the Smiths did it as well. I know that's a comparison that's been made before the Smiths and the Pet Shop yeah. Boys. That thing of yeah. setting yourself against the pop music machine that Lucy described in her in her intro. Exactly. I mean, uh, in Chris, uh, Chris Heath's uh, book, Literally, that uh, is an account of their first tour of the Far East and of Britain in 1989, Chris Heath uh, gets into this quite sort of drunken conversation with uh, Neil Tennant. And uh, Neil just goes off on this absolute rant about Stock Aitken and Waterman, who were the sort of Stakhanovite pop producers of the time, you know, making records for Kylie and Jason and uh, Sonia and Sunita and, and goodness knows who else. And Neil Tennant just starts saying their records are totally and utterly Thatcherite records and Stuck Aitken and Waterman are totally and utterly Thatcherite and I hate it all, but they are perfect pop records because they're representative of their time. <laughs> what was really perfect about that encapsulation, it was almost it was almost envy really. <laughs> Yes, the lyrics are a million miles away because, as you say, the, the lyrics, A, the Pet Shop Boys songs are about things and they're very subtle and elusive. And, in fact, we the lyrics were published as one of those standalone books, which we had a, a brilliant review in the paper of, of those as well, and they stand up very well. And the Stock Cake and Waterman oh, yeah. lyrics are, are all, <laughs> I love you, baby, you love me, why don't you love me? But actually, I was listening to a bit. The instrumentation... You can't imagine Faber publishing those. <laughs> but the instrumentation's not that different because because it's like dance music it's some at the beginning it's like high energy it's dance music it's almost disco but they're doing such madly different things yeah. uh, you say in your piece that they the, the pet shop boys didn't look cheery if they didn't feel cheery they refused to pretend that everything was fine and be glossy they if they saw a problem they wanted to talk about the problem they did everything on their own terms. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a pa- there's a paradox to this whole thing, though. I mean, in that the less they played the game, the more they seemed to win. You described their first appearance on Top of the Pops, which seems to sort of demonstrate that quite perfectly. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was just the sheer bloody mindedness. You know, a real unwillingness to compromise. And I think people um, they might have found it irritating. They might have found it really refreshing, but they certainly didn't forget it water cooler chat you know circa 1986 would have been oh my god did you see those two miserable guys on top of the pops last night standing still and not you know and not laughing or not you know not smiling when they sang the cliche quote was always the pet shop boys are the smiths you can dance to 
and they lasted longer than the Smiths as well. And they yeah. also, when they when they wrote about when they wrote about things, they wrote about real issues. I was thinking about it's a sin. Mm-hmm. There was an issue. We're going to hear a little bit of it's a sin for a little treat as well, and then maybe you could tell us what happened with that in Hong Kong. I watched the video just before we came on in heavy research. So it was directed by Derek Jarman. That's right. Uh, And it's completely mad. I mean, it's not completely mad. It's very very Derek Jarman. But all these cloaked figures persecuting the Pet Shop Boys. There's a scene where someone appears to be eating whipped cream and banana and possibly cabbage. Yeah. It's it's completely mad. And this is two years before, you know, before Like a Prayer by Madonna created such a sensation. There was two oh, years no. of controversy before that. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they basically commissioned Derek Jarman to distill one of his films into the length of one of their songs. So it was a Derek Jarman film, <laughs> sort of distilled into three or four minutes. Remind us what happened in uh, Hong Kong with the censorship. The Pet Shop Boys were so happy with what Derek Jarman had done for their It's a Sin video you know, the gluttony, you know, the personification of all the sins and so on, that they commissioned Derek Jarman to make um, a load of Super 8 films to be projected behind them during shows in the Far East. You know, they paid him tens of thousands of pounds and he made these Super 8 videos. And for It's a Sin, he basically made quite a similar version to the video, but he took it one step further. And for It's a Sin, in the live show, it was footage of two sort of, glistening chested boys rubbing oil over each other and kissing it's one of those things where you know you wouldn't think twice you wouldn't think twice no but it was 1989 and it was 1989 in hong kong not only was homosexuality um illegal in um hong kong at the time and the censors had to come around and see all the films before the live show happened and they said oh no 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 you can't have that one we can't show that one, it's illegal. You know, you, you'll be banned from Hong Kong for life if you show this video. And the Pet Shop Boys said, well, you know, we really don't like, we really don't like standing against our principles, but we understand that we're in a different place. You know, context is all, you know, maybe we should agree to, agree to the censorship, even though they weren't happy about the idea of censorship. And uh, on the night, they didn't really say anything to the projectionist apart from the fact that, oh, the, the Hong Kong censors are going to be here tonight. They're not going you know, they, they, want us to, they want us to censor all the It's a Sin footage. But they never went through a rehearsal of doing it. And so the poor projectionist only knew what he had to censor after it had already been projected. And so during It's a Sin, you saw all the footage, you know, the boys kissing, you know, the rubbing with oil and everything like that. And then you just get this great big hand over the screen, sort of darkening the screen after the rude bits had already been shown. But apparently the, the Hong Kong censors, rather than, you know, banning the Pet Shop Boys for life from Hong Kong, they said, oh, well, you know, you've made enough of an effort. So I think we can live with that. I hope the, pro- the projectionist is OK. <laughs> I'd, I'd quite like to hear him get in touch just to let us know that he's OK. <laughs> well, though he wasn't thrown into jail and he's still languishing <laughs> yeah. there now. Yeah, As no, the Pet Shop Boys move on. <laughs> 
Exactly, they let him carry the can. That's good. <laughs> and I'm afraid we have to, uh, I would talk about this for another hour, but I'm afraid we will have to finish off. I've got one more very simple or perhaps rather difficult question, Lindsay. I feel I have to ask, what's your favourite Pet Shop Boys song? Oh, my gosh. Oh, I wish I'd. Uh, I wish I'd had like about three weeks to think about this first. Um, uh, I think off the top of my head, I would say I would say "Left to My Own Devices," which is a really, really epic, epic song. About seven minutes. It's their version of "A Day in the Life," basically. It's got operatic trills. It's got a full orchestra. It's incredibly epic, but it, it's it's an absolute hymn to the everyday. I absolutely love it. Well, I think we should all go and find that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you should. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. I welcome any chance to talk about the Pet Shop Boys anytime. <laughs> we'll do it again <laughs> soon, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> thank Take you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, then. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. My introduction to the medieval period came when I was about 10. I have no shame, okay, I have a little shame in telling you that what scant knowledge I have comes from Terry Deary's Horrible History series, in which the Middle Ages were measly, cutthroat and pox-ridden. There's clearly a lot of truth in that picture. As one of this week's writers puts it, we come to the history expecting a high body count, and we are not disappointed. 
we learn that of the 88 Byzantine emperors who ruled between the 4th and 15th century, more than half were deposed and killed, mutilated or banished to a monastery. And between 1274 and 1315, Connaught had 13 kings, of whom nine died at the hands of their own brothers or cousins. But if this was a period of destruction, it was also, of course, a time of creativity and building. In particular, glorious cathedrals such as Westminster Abbey, which this year celebrates its 750th anniversary. David Horsepool, the TLS's history editor, has gathered a selection of articles on medieval history for us this week, and he will tell us everything we need to know. David, welcome. Hello. Shall we start with Len Scales' piece, because it gives us quite a lot of context. He's reviewing a book called Blood Royal Dynastic Politics in Medieval Europe by Robert Bartlett. So what is Bartlett sort of, what is he setting out to show us here? Well, Scales describes it as a combination of the facts of dynastic life. So that's all those marriage alliances, the longing for heirs, outbreaks of violence occasioned by the urge to protect that dynastic future. That's combined with a wider medieval context, preserving dynasties struck contemporaries, particularly powerful ones like barons, great churchmen and and so on. Um, Scale says at one point, he says, the reader is never allowed to forget how far the histories of kingdoms and their people, written as national destiny for generations of modern historians, were shaped by the chances and accidents of royal births, marriages and deaths. So as you as you say, so the overall picture is really it's one of simultaneously these extraordinary levels of planning, you know, marriages determined at birth or probably before birth, but also a real precariousness. Yeah, absolutely. We've got an illustration of the piece this week of Richard II meeting his six-year-old bride, Isabel of France, who apparently, when her age was, as it were, pointed out to him, he said, it's all right, I'm, I'm very kind and she'll learn. And then promptly was deposed and died when she wasn't much older. You know, it's a system of government that depends on male primogeniture. But this is at a time when producing a healthy heir, let alone one of a particular sex, was anything but guaranteed. Then Scales tells a story of, well, chroniclers talk about Yolande of Dreux, who was married to Alexander III of Scotland. When she was widowed, she sought to procure a baby, supposedly the son of an actor, to pass off as her own by the king. And as Scales says, historians remain divided on whether there's more to the story than misogynistic clerical myth-making. The idea that the moment your position goes and you don't have that vital air, it illustrates very well how you suddenly descend from being absolutely everybody wants to do everything for you to your life might be in danger. Women were both extremely important and completely sort of expendable and, you know, tradable and to be bartered with. Yeah, absolutely. This can be seen across Europe. It's not you know, at all confined to to England. The dynasties that really succeed, partly it's through that luck of actually having male heirs that, that do come along. So the Capetian kings of France, first of all, they um, had this extraordinary line of succession and that did actually mean that they could carry on. But if you happen not to have that chance, then, you know, civil strife would ensue. 
And what would the what would the every man's understanding or experience of this kind of political system have been? I mean, in a time before the tabloids and how would people have kind of felt connected to this system? What contact would they have had? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you would have thought very little, but they knew no other world. So they didn't expect to be able to vote in an, a new leader or whatever. So they they were, were very used to a world of kings and they believed in the world of a settled succession meant peace. We've used that as a title of the the whole review. The boy is peace is something that a French chronicler said. So to some extent, it did mean something to to everyone, not just to the rich and powerful. And actually, Len Scales begins his review talking about a story from around the time of the Peasants' Revolt, when the commoners took aside chronicles and explain that they would have no king called John in England and they were referring to John of Gaunt who they knew claimed the throne of Castile and they also knew as Len Scales points out that they'd had a bad King John and they didn't want another one called King John and interestingly enough we never have had another king called King John so all those things seem to have been in the popular consciousness so to some extent, it did mean something to, to everyone, not just to the rich and powerful. Um, and and talk of, of John leads us to our next subject, really. Um, Perfect. <laughs> exactly. Almost as if by design. Catherine Harvey has reviewed a book by David Carpenter, Henry III, The Rise to Power and Personal Rule. So it covers the 1207 to 1258 period. Yes. Uh, and introducing Henry III, she says... To be fair to this little-known king, it was something of a miracle that he ruled at all. What does she mean by that? And what kind of country did, did Henry inherit from his father? Well, I mean, we were talking about precariousness, and, and, and this is a perfect example. So he was nine years old when his father, King John, died. But not only that, he inherited a country that had fallen into complete disarray. It was in civil war at that time. And there was a French prince, Prince Louis, who had been invited in by the opponents of John, actually in control of much of the territory of England. So you have a nine-year-old king not in charge, nor is his sort of party in charge. And somehow he became the second longest reigning monarch. He used to be Victoria. Now it's Elizabeth. And he's he's now number three in that list. So it is an extraordinary story how he stuck stuck around. It was a time of great change. Can we say modernisation, but in, in the way and the extent to which power was held by a monarch? Yeah, I'm always a bit wary of modernisation because it's sort of medieval people always tended to look at any reform that happened as putting things back as they were rather than introducing anything new. But the big actual new thing was, of course, Magna Carta. What that meant was that the king was under the law. Consistent reissues of Magna Carta really do signal a changing way of medieval government. Magna Carta eventually, in sort of late Middle Ages, really gets forgotten. But it's very important through the 13th century. But it only gets revived in the 17th century by, again, people opposing the king and thinking the king's claiming too much power for himself. And then Magna Carta is suddenly, as it were, rediscovered by the parliamentarians. This book by David Carpenter, it sounds... Well, it sounds brilliant. It sounds very, very colourful, but it sounds like it's quite unusual in that it has been able to 
drawn a, a tremendous number of, of records to build a really clear picture of of what Henry III was like as a man. And he sounds... He sounds quite nice, in a way. I was going to say that. <laughs> sounds he like sounds a nice man. <laughs> jolly nice for a medieval king. They if a generally... little odd. Nice and silly, though, I suspect. And actually, I'm not sure quite how nice, because I think he was quite prickly as well. Catherine Harvey does does write about that, that he sort of sent back presents and things, if he thought. He allegedly sent back gifts he deemed inadequate, demanding better ones. Do we like that kind of person? I'm not. But do you not do that in January? I usually do. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I think you could probably live with that if you got 50 years of peace. I think that's a fair trade-off. Uh, but you didn't, in fact, get 50 years of peace with well. Henry III at all. You got another civil war. What David Carpenter has done brilliantly is managed to write a huge book about Henry III that's only a first volume. But the really big thing that happened in his reign is going to come in the next volume. I'm not sure whether that's sort of imminent or whether he's still got to write it. Don't tell us what happens. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's spoilers if it happened in 1265. I think, is that, I think I know that's a decisive battle in in my neck of the woods. It is in Lewis. Isn't it? Yeah. Bit of a clash with the brother-in-law, a brother-in-law. Simon de Montfort, yeah, um, Earl of Leicester, um, who is a particularly nasty piece of work in many ways. He was also very inspirational, and he managed to make a sort of crusade out of really um, feud. And what happened next in the subsequent volume is that the country did descend into civil war, and, and there was this brief and almost unique period in English history of a sort of quasi oligarchy, quasi-republic, in which Henry really wasn't part of it at all. I mean, he was a real figurehead for for a few years, but eventually Simon was uh, defeated and killed. So Henry, I mean, Henry, he did some things. He's, he's responsible for rebuilding Westminster Abbey. It's him that makes it the building who's, you know, who, that we recognise today, the building we're celebrating this year. So Al- Alison Schell is reviewing a book about that abbey. What's What's the story? What was it before Henry decided to rebuild it and why did it seem so important a project for him? Well, according to Alison Shell, it replaced a church built some two centuries earlier by St Edward the Confessor. The relevance of that to Henry III is that he took Edward the Confessor as a sort of patron saint. And the abbey itself, I mean, of course, we should immediately think, how does an abbey survive at this in this central role in our national life when one thing we know about Henry VIII is he got rid of them. And the answer to that question is that it had already become what was called a royal peculiar, as Michelle says under um, Elizabeth I. That meant it was under the direct protection of the crown, which it still is. Did they make it a royal peculiar because of its importance already at that stage? Yes, it, beca- it had become a, a very important site of royal ceremony and, you know, the coronations had happened there. But, it, I mean, it's a sort of curious, exceptional status that it, it was granted. I think I'm going to have to ask you to digress a little bit. In Alison Shell's piece, she mentions a story about the stone, and I have a 50% chance of getting this right, the Stone of Scone. Or the Stone of Scone? I think as a 33% chance, because I, I think, think Scots call it Scoon. Oh, Scoon. Lucy yeah, Dallas, well, if only you were there Scottish. You so what's the story? I mean, I am ignorant of it. 
I defer to the only Scott present in this conversation. Maybe Lucy knows this story because I'm sure you would have been one of the people campaigning for its removal from beneath the coronation chair. Every English monarch after Edward I, I think, was crowned on the chair over this holy royal stone which belonged to the Scots, which had been taken from the Scots when the English invaded. And every monarch, up to and including the present queen, sat on a coronation chair under which the stone resided. But there was a decision to move it back up to Scotland in 1996. And Alison Shell writes, the dean and chapter witnessed the removal in silent disapprobation, clad in black gowns. 1996, it has to be said, is astonishingly late to be giving it back because they nicked it a long time ago. <laughs> and I don't know how big the stone of Schoon is. I think it's at Edinburgh Castle now, is it? Yes. It's really interesting, the whole thing. I mean, it was a, the Scots were pretty cross about it for hundreds of years. As, uh, as... Um, well, David, thank you so much. We'll have to leave it there. I will be shelving this week's TLS alongside my copy of the Measly Middle Ages, I think. Thanks very much for joining us, David. Thank you for having me. Uh, That is all we have time for this week. All that remains is for us to thank David Horsepool and Lindsay Hanley for bringing their very different specialisms to the table. Don't forget to pick up a copy of the TLS, whether in print or digitally. In this week's issue, you'll find a truly brilliant essay on the very Victorian scandal around naked sea swimming. Apparently, it was all the rage. A history of experiments in the science of isolation. What does being alone for long periods of time do to our brains? I'm sure we could all do with knowing that. Reflections on the present and future of theatre in these times of pandemic, why men are struggling to write about sex, and much more. For now, though, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.